First John chapter three, verses four through 10, follow along in your own Bible. As I read out loud, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And we'll finish there. It's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Who's your daddy? It's an important question, isn't it? Who your daddy is really, really matters. If you want to get a job in a small town, who your daddy is matters. If you want to be a professional athlete, guess what? Who your daddy is really matters, right? Like I've looked at my son a few times and just gone, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm so sorry, son. LeBron James doesn't have to apologize for the genetics that he passes on. Who your daddy is really matters. And that is the question of this text. Verse 10 gives us the great question. Are you a child of God or are you a child of the devil? Are you a child of God the Father or are you a child of the Father of lies? Who is your daddy? John wants us to know, to have assurance that you're a child of God. Last week, Weber talked to you about one of the great blessings and benefits of what it is to be a child of God. And they are numerous. They are incalculable. They are amazing. And so after giving how wonderful it is to be a child of God, John now asks the question, do you know? Do you know you're a child of God? How do we know? He's actually quite clear. Verse 10, it's quite clear. The evidence, the test of your assurance. How can you be sure you're a child of God? What does verse 10 say? By this it is evident, those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. It's very clear, isn't it? You can know you're a child of God. You can have confidence that you're a child of God, that you're loved by him, that you have an inheritance in heaven if you do not keep on sinning and if you do not practice righteousness. Now, I want to get something out of the way right here at the beginning because these are some of the most terrifying verses in all of Scripture for the New Testament Christian, right? It says, if you keep on sinning, you are not a Christian. Now, this is frightening. Verse six says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And even for us, even if you're a very faithful Christian, in fact, perhaps if you are a faithful Christian, you're gonna be looking at your life and you're going, I sinned yesterday. In fact, I think there's a really good chance that I sinned on the way to church today. 
In fact, I think there's a good chance I've sinned since I got to church today. So am I not a Christian? Verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And you think, sometimes I don't practice righteousness. These are frightening verses. These are verses that um, those who push a doctrine called perfectionism would look to as their primary verses that they would use to espouse their doctrine. And, and the question is, should we as Christians, is John saying that the way you can know you're a Christian is if you're perfect, as if you don't, you don't sin ever anymore? If I sin, does that mean I don't know Christ? That's a question we should ask, and I want to get out of the way right here at the beginning. Well, I want to say no, that's not what John is saying. John is not saying that if you ever sin that you are not a Christian, that you can have no confidence that you're a Christian, and for two reasons. First is this, because of what John said in 1 John verses, chapter 1, verses 8 and verse 10 as well. 1 John 8 says this, If we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Then in verse 10 it says, If we say we have not sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John is saying, this is really important, that you must, if you're going to be a believer, you must confess that you are a sinner and that you sin still. Now, this is a really important biblical interpretive principle, right? This is one of those great interpretive principles you get from seminary. So here's what it is. The writers of the Bible are not stupid. So when John five minutes before says, if you don't say you're a sinner, you can't know God, and then says you can't keep on sinning, He's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. He is not contradicting himself within the same thought. John didn't write John 1.1 and then totally forget what he said five minutes later. He knows what he says. He remembers what he says. He's saying, so we know that this can't be talking about sinless perfection because of what verses 8 and 10 say. Then we also know this because of the verb tenses that are given in these frightening passages. Verse four, it says, those who make a practice of sinning. Verse six, those who keep on sinning. Verse eight, those who practice sinning. Verse nine, this person does not practice righteousness. Verse 10, do not practice unrighteousness. So what, what is going on here? The, the implication here, that the verbiage that is being used in the grammar here is such that it's saying that it is a continual sinning process. In other words, what is being espoused here is not that you sin every once in a while. That is not what he's saying. You, you, if you're a Christian, you will sin. There will be times where you will fall into sin. But what he's saying here is that you will not have a pattern and habit of practicing sin. The key word there is practice. Remember Allen Iverson? We're talking about practice. Practice? Yes, practice. If you think about what practice is, when you practice for a sport, or I have some children who just started playing an instrument for the first time, and they practice. What are you doing when you practice? It is intentional, committed thought process that you're going to do this on purpose, and you do it over and over and over again to get better at it. That's what he's talking about when you say keep on sinning, or you practice unrighteousness. It's an intentional purposeful, deliberate, focused effort to sin. And it's a pattern of your life towards that direction. When he speaks of sin, he is not talking about a singular sin that you sinned in a particular way yesterday, but he's talking about patterns and habits and deliberate acts of sinning. So what, is it, what does it mean? It's talking about the habit. It's talking about the patterns of your life. This is an indefinite pattern that you're not repenting of and you're not fighting against. 
This is the person who says, I have this sin in my life and I'm not gonna change it. I'm gonna make no efforts to drive this pornography addiction out of my life or to drive gossip out of my life or to drive my love for food out of my life. These things that have a hold over me that I'm gonna do nothing to make efforts to stop them, but I'm gonna just kind of give myself over to them. I'm gonna make a practice of them. And so John is saying, now understand this, we can be relieved that you don't have to be perfect today. Aren't we all relieved that in order to have confidence that you're a Christian, that you don't have to be perfect today or tomorrow? But there is, I don't want that, that, that truth to take away from the hard truth, the convicting truth that is being communicated here by John. John is saying that the Christian must be marked by sinlessness. He must be marked by a growing consistency of righteous integrity of faithfulness to the word of God. And so this is the question. Do you see a pattern of life change in your life? Are you seeing yourself move in place of your life of unrighteousness towards righteousness? Are you seeing points where you can go five years ago, I was like this and I have changed? This passage is meant to be a warning and it is a hard warning. And here's the difficult and challenging warning I must lay before you this morning. You might not be a Christian if you have not seen any change in your life since claiming to be a Christian. If there is, no, there is not a pattern of moving gradually, slowly towards righteousness, albeit, but moving in a singular direction in that way. Calvin described, John Calvin describes these people who indulge themselves in, in habits of sin and allow themselves to do that indefinitely. As he says, that they, they indulge themselves in the liberty of, sin, of sinning. And those who have deliberate purpose to sin, or a, he calls it a deliberate course of sin. It is the difference between falling into sin and jumping into sin with both feet. Those are two different things. Falling into sin versus jumping in purposely with, with vigor. And it says, in fact, John says that this is an issue, and this is an issue in our church today. Because what we have, we have downplayed sin that in the gospel-centered industrial complex that we have, we have failed to talk about this issue enough. And so much so that John says in verse seven, he says, do not be deceived. That there will be those in the church who will come in and say, there, there, there. It's okay, you and your sin. And they'll try to rid the Bible of certain particular sins and say, it's all right. We don't have to focus on these things. Skip Ryan, who's a pastor I love to listen to, tells a story of a number of years ago that he, uh, he and his wife were very good friends with a couple that was in their church. And this, this, this couple, after years and years of being friends with him, moved away. And about two years later, the wife of this couple calls him up one day and says, um, Skip, my, my husband, I believe, is having an affair with a woman that he's met at his new workplace. And so Skip Ryan calls up his friend. He says, what are you doing, brother? And he has a conversation with him. And he, but his friend is very kind of lackadaisical and kind of hems and hauls to the conversation. And there is no resolution, so he calls him up again. And that conversation, kind of hemming and hauling, and no kind of commitment to move away from this sinful practice has, is made. And so he calls him a third time, and he says, we have to meet today. I've bought a plane ticket for you and a plane ticket for me, and we're going to meet at a neutral location at the airport, and we're gonna meet and talk about this face-to-face. And so on Christmas Eve day, he flies out and his friend flies out and they meet each other and they sit and for hours, he says, I, tr- I tried every pastoral judo I knew to try. He asked him all the probing questions. He pursued his heart. He pleaded. He read Bible verses. He cried, everything. And yet the, man's, the mantra the man kept coming back to is, I believe in the grace of God. I believe God is merciful and he will forgive 
And Skip said, finally, he said, after his friend had said this a third or fourth time, he had to look at his friend and he said his friends, he said, you are my friend. And he said his name. Keep saying that you can keep on sinning and think that God is gonna forgive you. Then you do not have faith. You have presumption. You have presumption. And you, my friend, as much as it hurts me to tell you this, may not be a follower of Jesus at all. He said, I hated to tell those, say those words. I pleaded with him on the merit of the grace of Jesus Christ. But he needed to be wounded by this. And he said it was this warning that finally got a hold of a man. He got up, he walked over, this is back before cell phones, put quarters in a payphone, and called that woman up and broke the relationship off right then and there. This is a means of grace in your life to be warned, to call you from sinning, from patterns and habits of sinning in your life, to patterns of righteousness. So John says that the way you know you're a child is if you're growing, moving away from unrighteousness and sinning and moving towards righteousness. Now you might say, my goodness, preacher, I thought First John was supposed to be encouraging. You were supposed to assure me of my faith, to make me feel unsure, and this is really uncomfortable, and this is really unsettling. It is unsettling. But you see, John is not after cheap assurance. He's not after cheap grace. He's after real assurance. You see, the prophets of our day and the prophets of so many times that the, the true apostles have to confront in the days of the, of the scriptures is this, are the prophets who get up and say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. And for some of you, you are saying, peace, peace, in my relationship with God, where you should not be at peace at all. Because there's patterns and habits of your life that should make you unnerved. And as a pastor, when it comes to John, so often the mantra that I've been thinking about is this. It's a famous line for pastors. is the goal of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And so this morning, this is definitely one of those texts that afflicts the comfortable. And what John is seeking to do, what he wants to do is move away from cheap assurance, false assurance, and move you to real assurance the assurance that says, I can see in my life a pattern of moving from unrighteousness and moving towards righteousness. And so John is gonna, as, as a good pastor, as a good father, he speaks to them as children, and he says, I'm gonna, he gives them three, three ways, three motivation kind of punches to say, this is why you should turn away from sin. This is why you should move towards righteousness. And here's the pattern that he uses in the, in the scriptures, because we're gonna draw it out in very kind of three clear points but it's not quite as clear as you read the text. There are three themes that run through this. One is the nature and origin of sin. The second is the purpose and work of our Savior. And the third is the birth and presence of our seed. Now, John has this, this way of doing things. He kind of has a pattern where he'll say three things and then he'll repeat the same three themes. And that's what he does here today. John, in seeking to move us away from sin and towards righteousness, motivates us with three points. And the first one is found in verses 4 and verses 8a, the first half of verse A. And that is, he says, children, first recognize the nature and origin of your sin. The nature and origin of your sin. He's trying to motivate us by showing us how gross our sin is. And so first he points to the nature of our sin, verse 4. Verse 4 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then very succinctly he says, sin is lawlessness. The nature of sin is lawlessness. And you can definitely say a lot more about sin than this. But this is a, a nice, if you just want a, a straight biblical text to turn to and give a nice definition of what sin is, this is a good one to go to. Sin is just straight up, succinct definition is lawlessness. 
Sin is more than simply being off target. Sin is breaking the law of God. That's what it is. It's breaking the law of God. And this is not just simply talking about the result, the failure, but this is talking about the essence of what sin is. That when you rebel against the law of God, you rebel against the lawgiver. That's important. The law is not just institutional and cold. God's law is relational. And so how you view the commandments of God is an expression of how you view the commandment giver. David, over and over and again in the Psalms, says, I love your law. Why? Because he knew the lawgiver. And the same way, so you as a Christian, you're to love the law of God. But if you don't love the law of God, if you simply sin and don't care, then you rebel against the law of God. But you're not just simply rebelling against a law on paper. You're rebelling against the God himself. To fail to keep God's law is to say that I want to reject God's. That's what the, that's what the heart of this is to say, I, in a childish way, kids, listen up. This is what sin is. Sin is to say, I want my way, not your way, God. That's what lawlessness is. I want my way, not your way, God. So that's what John tells us, that the nature of sin is to reject the lawgiver, to reject his laws. But he also tells us of the origin of sin. Verse eight, the first half of it. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, as bad as it sounds to say that you've rejected the lawgiver, I think to our modern ears, verse eight strikes us as all the more offensive to us. Okay, it's one thing to say, okay, I've rejected God by not following his commandments, but did it call me a child of the devil? That seems a little bit harsh, don't you? But that is what John says. Those who sin are from whom? The devil. Augustine said it this way, the devil made no man, he begat no man, he created no man, but whosoever imitates the devil becomes a child of the devil. The phrase of the devil indicates that one draws from this, from this ruling one, the ruling power of your life. That this is the great example of your life. That the father of lies is your example. You wanna grow up to be like daddy? Well, if you sin, you're saying that my daddy is the devil and I wanna be like him. That's what John is saying. Sin is the devil's practice. It's his vocation. And so John is saying, do you see exceeding sinfulness? Do you see the exceeding sinfulness of sin? It is not just, okay, I'm sorry. It is not, I, 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 I am a little bit off target. Sin is never light. Even the ones that seem to have the lightest consequences, it is never light. It is never light for not only does it violate the desires of a beautiful and majestic God, it actually puts you in, participates in the vocation of the evil one, the devil himself. This passage is a warning. It's a warning to us to recognize the evil of sin. And I don't want to crush tender souls this morning because many of you are still struggling with patterns of sin and I am still struggling with patterns of sin. And what are they? It's in your discussion guide for your community group. But what are they? Think about it now. Is it greed? Money? You can never get enough money and you're hoarding it to yourself? Yeah, is it lust? Is it the constant sense of believing what the world says about your body and that you live in light of that message? Is it always, is it having that last sip of wine, the last cup of wine that is too far? What is it? What is the pattern? What has a hold of you? What are you struggling with? Are you struggling at all? 
We are not talking, remember, we are not talking about sinless perfection here. We are talking about patterns. But the warning here is this, that you must flee from those patterns, from those habits, from those indefinite sins. You must run away from them to avoid living a duplicitous life where you say one thing, but you live another. Are you striving hard for obedience? This is one of the ways in which you can know you're a child of God. Are you fighting sin? One author said this, that the life of the Christian, it should be one of truceless antagonism against sin. You should hate it. You should go against it. It should be a lifelong hostility against your sin. John Chrysostom, who lived at the end of the fourth century, he was known as of all the great history of great preachers that the world has known about. John Chrysostom was kind of the first well-known mega pastor, mega preacher. And he, in fact, they, they had a play on his name. They would call him Christostatum, which meant in the language of the then it was the golden mouth. And the tradition was that he was arrested by the Roman Empire and his wife, the Roman emperor's wife, Eudoxia, hated John Chrysostom. And, and the tradition was that the emperor sought to make John recant of all of his heresies, his Christian heresies, all this gospel that he was preaching. But he was not able to do so. And so he began to consult with some counselors who knew about the Christian faith. And so he draw them in. He asked them this question, should I put John in a dungeon? And the counselor said this, no, for he will be glad to go, for he longs for the quietness wherein he can delight in the mercies of God. So then he goes, okay, then we'll kill him, said the, said the emperor. And they said, no, 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 for he will be glad to die. For he declares that in the event of his death, he will be in the presence of the Lord. What shall we do then, the emperor said. They said, there is only one thing that is said to give Chrysostom pain to cause Chrysostom to suffer, and that is to make him sin. For if you make him sin, he will be in deep and grievous pain. That is the perspective of a Christian. That should be your testimony. That yes, you may sin, and you may sin today, and you may sin numerous times, but you hate that sin, and you're trying to flee from it, and you grieves your spirit. It is the sorrow in your heart whenever you sin. The Apostle John knew that this is what our attitude should be. This was not a gray area, and this was not open for debate. Do you love sin, or do you hate it? The child of God hates it. The child of God hates it, and here's why. And this is your second point. John's first tactic is to seek to motivate us from sinning and to move towards righteousness. And what does he use? He uses the negative factor, doesn't he? Sin is bad. It's the gross-out factor. It's kind of like when the, you know, the local news is going for the takedown, and they're wanting to say, don't go to that hotel. And so what do they do? They take the black light into the hotel, and they put it over the bed, and you're going, never again. I'm staying with friends always. I will never go into a hotel because that is gross. That's what John is doing. That's the first point. It's the, it's the black light over how disgusting sin is. But the second, we get to the, some positive things. The second thing is the way he's trying to motivate us to move away from sinfulness is to remember the purpose and work of our Savior. He does this in verses 5 and then again in verse 8b, in the second half of 8. John reminds us, as you saw last week, that he points to how wonderful it is to be a child of God. And the way he points to that is he points and has us look forward. Look at your inheritance as a child of God. Well, this week, he doesn't, just, he doesn't point forward. He points backwards to the work of God and Jesus. He points to two things. First, verse 5, he says this. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. He says, what's the work of Jesus? It's to take away sin. John reminds his readers that the characteristic of the devil is to sin, but the characteristic of Jesus was to come to eliminate sin, to remove sin from your life. And the second way that he said he calls us, the second thing he points to the work of Jesus is that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. This is verse, the second half of verse eight. The reason the Son of God appeared 
was to destroy the works of the devil. If sin is personal enemy number one, then Satan is public enemy number one. If your sinfulness is is personal enemy number one, Satan is public enemy number one, and the flesh is our internal foe and the devil is our external foe. And But we now, in Christ Jesus, Jesus came to put an end to his influence and his dominance and his power in your life. That's why he came. And the implication is this. The implication is this, is if you understand what Jesus came to do, that you will run from sin. Paul has this issue in Romans where he's talking about the incredible grace of God and he's saying, isn't it amazing how wonderful God's forgiveness is for us? And then he begins to answer questions that he knows his readers are are proposing in their heads. And one of the questions is this, well, why don't we just go ahead and go on, keep on sinning? And he says, you do not know the gospel if that's your attitude. Because the gospel is the whole reason why Jesus came was to put an end to sin in your life and to put an end to the devil's work in your life. And so if you don't understand that aspect of the gospel, guess what? You've missed the gospel. If the gospel for you means I get to sin without consequences, that's not the gospel. The gospel, yes, he has come to pay the consequences for your sins, but he's come actually not to to free you from that necessarily, but to free you from the consequences of sins by freeing you from the sin's power in your life, to take you away from that, the devil's influence. And so what John is saying is that sin is antithetical to the gospel. The biblical illustration here I think that we can turn to is this. As Jesus goes, if you remember, there was a, a scene where the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and they bring her to Jesus' feet and they, they look at him and they say, Jesus, won't, shouldn't this woman be condemned and put to death for her adultery? And Jesus, and I won't go into it too much because Jesus essentially brings them and shows these leaders their own shame of their sin. But then we come to the place where he speaks to the adulteress. And what does he say to her? Jesus says, he looks at the woman, he says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Now, the beautiful truth of the gospel is this, is condemnation is taken from you, but the call of the gospel is go and sin no more. And we cannot forget that. He came to set you free from the condemnation, but also to set you free from sin and its power in your life. And it costs him much to do this. What did it, it cost him? He had to go to the cross for this, to set you free from the power of sin. That's how awful your sin is. It says in the great a one-line phrase of what the justification of the gospel is. He became sin who knew no sin so that you might be the righteousness of God. He didn't come simply to take away the consequences of sin, but to make you righteous, not just legally in your status before God, but actually in your life to make you righteous. So if that's why he came, if you understand the gospel, then you'll say, in light of the gospel, I'm gonna pursue that. He came to set you free from sin not to free you to sin. So do you understand that? Do you see the implications for your life that when you look to the gospel, you look to the work of Jesus, and it should be, this should be the motivating force. This is why he came. Why would I deny this? Why would, why, would, why would I live this way when the whole thing that I love about the gospel, this is, he came to set me free from these things. So John says, first, sin is ugly. But then second, he points us back to the gospel. He says, look to the work of Jesus The whole reason he came was to set you free from these activities, to set you free from your addictions, to set you free from your habits and patterns of sin. So run away from them. But the third, the third motivating thing he says is that we, he calls us to regard the birth and presence of our seed. That is odd language. Verse six and verse nine is where we see this. 
No one who abides in him, that word abide is the key word, keeps on sinning. And then verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What does it mean for God's seed to be in us? It's a little bit disturbing, but see if you can be okay with this. The word, the Greek word that undergirds that is the, is the Greek word that, where we get the word sperm. It means you have God's DNA in you, is what it means. That is the physical, graphic language that is talked about in our new birth. If you're a child of God, guess whose DNA you have? God's. That is what is being communicated here. There is no sin in Christ, and he has come to live in you. It's the DNA of righteousness that has come and now has power in your life at the center and the core of who you are. And we abide in him so we're to be who you are. Be who you are. Be who God is making you to be in your DNA, your spiritual DNA. And with the call here that I want you to, that John is having us, he says, regard this truth. Pay attention to this reality that you have a new DNA, a new birth, a new seed at the core of your life. That your old DNA was all unrighteousness. It was the DNA of the devil, the DNA of sin, the DNA of Adam. But now you have a new DNA. It's the DNA of Jesus. The DNA that longs for righteousness, that hates sin, that longs to please the Lord. And here's why the truth of God's seed should give you hope and encourage you and actually motivate you to move towards righteousness. Two things I want to say about this. It should encourage you because the seed of God grows gradually. This imagery is awesome. The seed of God grows gradually. Think about a child in utero. It takes like nine months. It's not seed and then boof, a baby's there two days later. It takes a while. And then even after that, you're still growing for like another, like what, 25 years. That's a long time of growth. And that is the imagery that is going on here. It is a gradual growth. May this comfort you, those who are hurting from what I've said earlier this morning. Rooting out the patterns of sin in your life and seeing the growth of the DNA of Jesus come to fruition in your life, it takes a long time. It's imagery of seed. Because when you plant a seed, it takes months. Sometimes there are some trees, right? It takes years upon years upon years. And this is the truth. God's DNA is being grown in you gradually, slowly, painfully slowly. Because this is, you are not, you didn't, you are not fertile ground. Did you know that? That you're like that hard, those pictures of like the desert where the, like the ground is like cracking. That's you. And you live in a world in which it's parched. There's no water, right? And you live in a world in which the devil still wanders and he tries to destroy the seed that is alive in your, in your hearts. That's the kind of ground that you are. And so it takes, before, often before you'll see fruit. And guess what? Often it's in the season of dryness. For those of you who are looking at your life and you're going, man, I'm laboring. I'm laboring against this pattern of sin. I am telling my friends. I have accountability. I am struggling with this. And this, I, I feel like I am losing this should be encouraging because in those times and those seasons of dryness, what happens? The root goes deeper. And you may not think you're growing. And you, man, if you go to try to, if you go look at a plant every day and you're going, is it growing? Is it growing? That's, that's going to be distressing. But over time, very gradually, very slowly, 
that root, Lord willing, you're finding bedrock, you're finding water, the living water, and you're growing into fruitfulness. That should be comforting from this imagery of seed. The second is also this. It's not just gradual, it's also powerful. The seed of God grows powerfully. You know, the image of the, the parable of the sower, right? There's the, the seeds that don't take hold. But if the, spirit, if the seed of God has taken hold in your life, what does it say? It bears fruit 40, 100 times fold. When the seed of God gets inside of your heart, there ain't nothing stopping its growth. That is the power. Do you know it's in a poppy seed? A poppy. Do you know it's in, a, in an apple seed? An apple. It's what's going to grow. Do you know it's in a God seed? The glory of God. The glory of God has been put at the core of your life. That means, though it may start small, right, the grain of a mustard seed, do you know what kind of power you have inside of you? We sang of it this morning in Christ alone. We sang of the conquering king. Why? He defeats sin, he defeats death, and he defeats the devil. That's the kind of power you now have inside of you. So this, this should encourage you. Listen, this should encourage you. Warning you again, John says that there is no way that if you have this power inside of you that you won't change, right? If the power of God is inside you, if the glory of God now resides as the seed of your heart and it's growing, you absolutely will change because there's nothing that can stop it. Therefore, if you don't ever see any change, you go, go, okay, that's a problem. But if the power of God is there, then nothing can stop it. Do you know what's in you? It's the seed of God, the glory of God himself. And it, it, it not, it's not a weak seed. If you put a daffodil seed under a slab where they, they're going to pave and put a sidewalk, it isn't, you know, it's not going to grow up. But if you put an oak tree seed, what's going to happen? You know the beautiful truth, when people talk about this in regards to multiplication, and one acorn is the power to cover the earth with oak trees because of the old multiplication factor, the fruitfulness factor, and that's how it is with God. When you put God and plant him, when he is implanted in your life, Listen, you may have a house on top of him and that tree will take over. It will crush and crumble. And for many of you, because of your background, because of the sins in your life, that is your addictions, your patterns of sins, it is the sidewalk over. But one day the beautiful truth is, is that the power of Jesus who is now residing in you, his root system will destroy that sidewalk, will destroy those patterns of sin in your life. And so, and so the, the truth here is, and why this is so encouraging, is it's, 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 it's convicting because you gotta go, man, I gotta see some change. But it's also encouraging because you know, man, ain't nothing gonna stop this seed from growing. And I'm, let me say this, for those of you that are struggling with habitual sins, one, and I've said this many times, but I wanna remind you of it over and over and over again, is one of the discouraging the things that I'm concerned about for you is that you give up. You give up. And you say, I'm not changing Listen, the victory has been won. If the seed is there, there ain't nothing stopping that, that seed from growing into an enormous oak tree of your life, an oak tree of righteousness. And so you, when the devil comes to you and says, you know what, you can't defeat this sin, you tell him, you go straight to hell. Because I have the seed of God and the glory of God who defeated you, who defeated sin, who defeated death in my life. And he is gonna destroy the sin in my life. And then you get up and you face that sin again and you fight again. The means, the motivation for fighting with your sin on a day and day out basis is this truth. The glory of God resides in you. 
And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. God is committed to helping us change and grow. God wants to see the ugliest, ugliness of your sin go away. But he, it's by his, he wants to see the waning power of sin removed from your life. Consider that Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. Greater is he who is in you than who? Than he who is in the world. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So hope you have the seed of God, the glory of God at your heart. So we come back to where we started. Who's your daddy? Is it God the father or is it the father of lies? Does your life show it? If God is your father, if you are a son or daughter of the king, it changes you. It changes everything. I want to end with this story. On two occasions in the history of the state of Tennessee, they have elected an illegitimate child to the role of governor, to the office of governor. If you know what I mean by an illegitimate child. One of them was a man named Ben Hooper, and Ben Hooper one night sat down with a pastor named Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock was known as in the 70s and 80s as essentially the pastor to Appalachia. He was an amazing uh, storyteller. But he sat down with Fred Craddock one night over dinner, and he told Fred Craddock his story and how his life had changed. And he says, here's, here's the account of his story, of Ben Hooper's story. He said, I was born in the mountains of Tennessee. My mother wasn't married when I was born, and no one knew who my dad was, not even her. And so I had a hard time. When I started school, my classmates had a name for me, and it wasn't a nice name. It started with a B, and it rhymed with lard. I used to go off by myself at recess and during lunch because the taunts of my playmates cut so deeply. What was worse was going down to town on a Saturday afternoon and feeling every eye burning a hole through me. They were all wondering just who my real father was. Who's your daddy? When I was about 12 years old, a pre new preacher came to our church and he preached hellfire and brimstone. He scared me and he fascinated me all at the same time. I'd always slip into church late and leave early so no one would see me. I feared that if anyone saw me, they would ask what a boy like me was doing in their church. One day the preacher said the benediction and the closing prayer so fast that I got caught and had to walk out with the crowd. I could feel every eye of the church on me. And just about the time I got to the door, I felt a big hand on my shoulder turn me and spin me around. And I looked up and the preacher was looking right at me with a look of stern investigation. Who are you, son? Whose boy are you? And I felt a weight come upon me like a black cloud. Even the preacher was putting me down. But as he looked down at me, as he was studying my face, suddenly he began to smile with a big smile of recognition. He said this, wait a minute. I see the family resemblance. You are a son of God. Boy, you got a great inheritance. You go out there and you claim it. Ben Hooper said he had never had a daddy. They looked at Fred Craddock and said, that was the day my life changed. Because when you know who your father is, it changes everything in you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray by your spirit that in, the, in these moments you would have, have um, afflicted the comfortable, that you would drive them to their knees and crying out to you and saying, God, I see this pattern of sin in my life and I want it gone. God, I pray that you'd also comfort the afflicted for those who are weary of the road, who are tired of the fight, Lord, may the words of John, may looking to the work of Jesus, 
looking to the reality of the glory of God living inside us, would it help them get up again today and to fight sin tomorrow and the next day and the next day? Well, we confess that, like it says in our fridge, even yous grow weary, we fall down. But Lord, for those who trust in you, who trust in the work of Jesus, who trust that you're at work in our lives, who trust in your power within us, that they get up and they run with the wings like eagles. So Lord, I pray that the, the folks in this room, that I would be that way in our fight to flee sin and to run towards righteousness. Would you empower us, motivate us, strengthen us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask in that precious name, amen.